I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Economist. Ever since the financial crisis began in 2007, people have been trying to explain how it happened and who was responsible. Bankers who'd once been lionised were now cast low, becoming fair game for every critic. But in a new book called Smart Money, The Economist's business affairs editor, Andrew Palmer, offers a very different view. I'm Fiametta Rocco, The Economist's books editor, and Andrew is with me now. Andrew, the financial crisis made people really quite angry about the industry on both sides of the Atlantic, about bankers in particular. Yet in your book, you argue that we need the finance industry more than ever. Why is that? Well, first of all, I should say that it's totally understandable that people were angry with bankers and angry with finance. Uh, Huge mistakes were made. There was outright criminality in some instances. But my contention is that the narrative has swung too far in the other direction and that people are forgetting about the good that finance can do. And in some senses, this is a statement of common sense. If you think about the way that human progress has evolved, how modern economies evolved, finance has been there holding our hand all the way through when we wanted to trade, we invented money. When we wanted to invest, we invented debt. Uh, When we wanted to mitigate risk, we invented insurance. And the book's proposition is that there are still really big problems out there that society needs to solve and that finance has a big role in playing. And I'd speak to various entrepreneurs and businesses who are grappling with financial solutions to those problems. There's been such a huge wave of books about the dark side of the industry, as you say, some of them very, very good. Tell us a bit about some of these problems that finance is helping to solve. So to take one example, finance has now been re-regulated. We're all keen to make it safer, rightly so. But that means that there is less incentive for lenders to give credit to more marginal borrowers, to less creditworthy borrowers. So in effect, what you have are the big banks draining credit away from people who are poorer. Now, you can solve that problem in one of two ways. You can improve underwriting from payday lenders, and you can use big data to do that. So people who are analysing things like social media records or the way that people use their handwriting even. Capital letters is an indicator of poor creditworthiness, it turns out. And that can improve the underwriting process. But the most important thing to do is to encourage people to save. And there are behavioural flaws that you can harness in order to encourage people to save. And one of them is our love of lotteries. So, for example, American households spend more on lotteries each year than they do on dairy products or alcohol. They love playing lotteries. And finance has harnessed this lottery playing impulse in the past. If you look at the limited liability company, it is a bit like playing the lottery. You put your money in, there's a cap on how much money you can lose, and there's potentially a jackpot if you back the next Google. And there's a very interesting non-profit fund in the States which is trying to take that insight and encourage poorer people to save. So it launched a product called a prize-linked savings account, 
And the way it works is for every $25 a poorer person puts into that account, they get a raffle ticket. There's a cap on the number of raffle tickets you can win. If you win the raffle, you get a cash prize. It doesn't particularly matter how big the prize is, but just the fact that you can win one makes people want to save. And since this was first launched in 2010, there's been an incremental $100 million saved from some of the poorest people in American society. It's a very simple idea. It's very low tech, but it solves a real problem. And is the lottery gene, if you want, particularly American phenomenon, or is it something that spreads through other cultures? It does spread through other cultures. And in fact, we have an example here in the UK of premium bonds being exactly that same kind of idea. Sweden has a similar kind of idea. It is true that the Americans seem to be particularly fond of lotteries, but it is an impulse that appears to exist across societies. Now, what about the bits of finance that we should still fear, even with all the re-regulation? Are there corners that still haven't been swept out? I would argue less than corners. It's the front of the house that needs to be worried about. So we think now, at least the sort of political and public discourse is around, there's a casino bit to finance, which is the investment banking and wholesale markets. That's where the big risks are taken. That's where these sort of wheeler dealing, bonus laden bankers are up to no good. And then there's the utility bit of finance, which is the familiar type of lending, mortgages, lending to small businesses. And we think of that as being good. And the regulations, in fact, privilege that kind of activity. But that's where the real danger lies, and in particular property and mortgages. Single biggest financial asset is property. It's hugely driven by debt. It's subject to all the behavioural flaws that we should worry about. Individuals going in, making decisions without much thought and later regretting it. And above all, it's subject to the illusion of safety. So, you know, we as individuals will buy a house and think, well, at least I've got something tangible, no matter what. And bankers will also think, my lending is secured. So if the payments don't keep coming, I've got a house that's collateral, I can realise some value. So what you have is in a bubble, more and more money heading towards property, because that's the safe option. That's the irony of the last crisis. And so I think the bit of finance that we need to worry about most is the one that is actually front and centre in the financial system, that is always there when there's a banking crisis, and that continues to be privileged by the regulations. And what would you like seen done about that? So the sort of technical dry answer is that the capital rules, which basically govern how much money banks have to set aside against unexpected losses, that they treat property more harshly. I'd like to see policy changes. So in America, there's still tax relief on mortgage payments and an apparatus around Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that basically takes the risk and dumps it on taxpayers. And i Personally, I'd like to see blunter instruments like loan-to-value ratios. You would only be able to buy a property if you have at least a deposit of 10%. That's highly unpopular, and politicians are hurling promises which enable people to buy property very much the same in the US. Nonetheless, I think it's important. You write a lot in the book about how innovation is helping to make finance safer. Do you think Silicon Valley, with its different belief system, is bringing a more admirable ethos to Wall Street? And how do you see that developing? Yeah, I think there's a real revolution underway and it's very early days. But you can think of the mainstream financial industry being under attack from two directions. From above, there are the regulators piling on rules. And then from below, there are these really interesting startups, lots of them in Silicon Valley, some of them in London, some of them in other places, which are reinventing the way that finance is done. The example that's most advanced is the peer-to-peer lending industry. So a bank intermediates 
credit at the moment. We put a deposit into a bank, it takes that money and lends it out. A peer-to-peer lending platform connects savers and borrowers directly, and that does a number of things. It avoids the debt problem, banks borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, and it avoids what is known as maturity transformation, which is the idea that there's a mismatch between assets and liabilities. So I can get my deposit out at any point, but a bank has extended a mortgage that runs for years and years and years. Peer-to-peer lending gets rid of that problem. You can't get your money back until the loan you've funded has matured. Both of those things make finance safer. And in addition, they're a good deal for consumers. It tends to be cheaper and faster and more efficient than the mainstream industry. As we speak, Andrew, Europe faces a financial mess that threatens really to overwhelm it. Is there a role for finance, do you think, that could help Europe out of the mire? And what might that look like? There undoubtedly is. Europe will blame finance for the crisis with some justification, not not total justification. But some of the platforms we talked about, these new venues for lending and providing equity, are one way for capital to flow to small businesses as the banks retrench and try to clean up their balance sheets. And also in Europe in particular, there's a dependence on banks as opposed to capital markets. Very different to America. About 80% of lending in Europe is done by the banks, and they at the moment are in bad shape. So some of the techniques like securitization that were at the heart of the crisis that European policymakers really don't like are actually going to be part of the solution to Europe's credit problem. And developing capital markets, developing instruments that enable big institutional pools of money to find their way to small businesses, smaller companies, is going to be a big part of Europe's eventual recovery. Andrew, thank you. That was Andrew Palmer, The Economist's business affairs editor, talking to me about his new book, Smart Money. Smart Money is out in America and in Britain, published by Basic Books. The Economist.